This is Daniel Fagella, Head of Research at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research, and you're listening to the AI and Business Podcast. We're going to be speaking today about the realities of AI adoption and deployment and how leaders need to realistically think through the challenges of adoption. When it comes to who knows the challenges of adoption, oftentimes it's going to be the service providers, the people that are doing the hands-on heavy lifting within the enterprise. On this show over the years, we've had executives from HSBC, Citibank, Facebook, oil and gas companies, you name it, who have shared their experience of bringing AI into their company. But again, the service providers have a different take. And we've had leaders from Cognizant and Accenture and other firms speak about their perspective. But it's been a while since we've talked about another important element of the services ecosystem, and that is the companies handling data labeling and annotation. We've had some of these firms on in the past. Those of you who are longtime listeners would recognize some of the companies in that space. And this week, we're speaking with the chief revenue officer of iMerit Technology, Jeff Mills. As mentioned, iMerit is in the data labeling and annotation space. They work with some of the largest autonomous vehicle companies in the world to help them improve their models when it comes to vision, LiDAR, and more, as well as many companies in big tech, as well as many other legacy enterprise projects with firms who are a little bit less used to AI transformation. In this episode, Jeff walks through from his perspective at the juncture of data, value, and workflows, what it looks like to define a business problem, to determine the right tools, and to bring a project to life. And Jeff unpacks a lot of realistic challenges that many firms are going to face when they come up with their own first set of AI projects, especially when these projects are sort of new for them and they don't have anything in deployment. It's a very different world running something in a little nice pilot environment versus actually putting something into deployment. And Jeff brings up some of the most important differences between the two and how service providers and enterprise leaders need to work together to make them happen. There's a lot of strong insights here about how to manage data and how to keep people in the loop with data quality. Obviously, that is iMerit's business. They have an entire conference focused on this topic coming up on December 2nd, the iMerit ML Data Ops Summit. If you Google ML Data Ops Summit, you'll see it online. They're partnering with TechCrunch to make this event happen. So Jeff has a lot of this on his mind, not only from his interactions with iMerit's clients around the world, but also in preparation for this big event about making some of these educational topics more salient for enterprise leaders. This episode is brought to you by iMerit Technology. If you are an AI vendor company interested in reaching Emerge's global executive audience, stay tuned to the end of this episode and we'll give you more details about that. But without further ado, let's dig into the meat and potatoes of this episode. There's a lot of great insights here, so buckle up. This is Jeff Mills with iMerit Technology here on the AI and Business Podcast. So, Jeff, we're going to start off talking about the realities of AI deployment. So there's a lot to explore about challenges and around the mindset of approaching complex projects, but you step into a lot of these. What does it look like and what are we faced with when we're really looking at a complex AI program inside of an enterprise? Yeah, I think it's a it's a great question, Dan. Thank you for asking that. I, I think there are two different types of projects that we get faced with a lot. The first type I'll throw in massive quotes, is the relatively straightforward project. Yeah. And, I, and I jokingly say relatively straightforward because anyone who's in this space knows the devil's in the details. Nothing is really straightforward once you start unpacking it. That said, what I look at that is solution scoping. And solution scoping is, is we can't kind of say it's in writing. So it's something that you're looking at in writing. You're looking at guidelines. You're looking at the use case itself. 
You know what the client needs. You're unpacking it based on the needs of the client that are pretty explicit. They generally have clear quality targets, if nothing else. And so in those types of scenarios, it's pretty straightforward. Again, relatively straightforward. We go through, we double check the guidelines. We make sure that we can get to a quality level that's going to be accepted. So once we go into that, you're looking at the training. Training is the first and foremost, most important part of any AI deployment is, is the people working on it? Are the technicians trained on what you want your algorithm to eventually uh, be trained upon? And so if, if, and one of my analogies I like to use is around pizza. If we go to New York and we say, what's a great piece of pizza look like? A New Yorker can explain it very quickly and say, it's a thin piece piece of pizza. Uh, I can hold it laterally and it doesn't fall. It's crispy. It's, you know, it's, it's very specific. Now, if I asked a person in Chicago the same question, it would look more like a lasagna. And so it would be this massively thick crust pizza filled with cheese and, you know, all of this stuff. So what we're trying to do in the beginning is make sure that we understand what the client's goals are and so that we can train our staff to make sure that we're labeling thin crust pizza, the New York pizza, and thick crust pizza, the, the Chicago pizza. So that, that's really paramount in the beginning. Then we do the calibrations and quality reviews that are needed to ensure that the customer agrees with everything we're doing. And in that section, sometimes you'll find, Dan, that the, the guidelines aren't as clear as we thought they were in the beginning. Yeah. And so then we do a lot of guideline refinement uh, around that calibration. Once we get that smoothed, then we move into scale. And so we have customers that have gone from you know, five technicians when we first launched them going through this calibration project. And then now we have over a thousand live technicians working with them on, you know, seven, eight, sometimes 10 workflows. And so it's going through though that repetitive process to make sure that we're getting to the end result the customer needs. Now the type two one, which is the more interesting one most likely is the complex project. And I think when we get to complex projects, what we're now talking about, I, I mentioned reading when it comes to solution scoping, now we're talking about solutions consulting, which is more like writing. We're now coming and, and writing a solution for the customer because the customer doesn't really understand where they're going yet. And so in that case, what we're really going through is looking at what tools need to be used to make this project work. We're normally almost writing the guidelines with them. Sometimes they have a whole guidelines team that's created it, but because they've never worked on it and they haven't gone through a first, second, third, fourth rendition of this thing, then they just haven't got the guidelines to where they think they, you know, where they really need to be to move these projects yeah, forward. Yeah. So we spent a lot of time at that point going through and doing the solutions consulting piece, which is really finding the right tools, the right training, the right documentation, and starting to move those things so that once we get into the prototype stage, because normally these types of projects haven't gone through prototyping yet, um, are going to still be one of the, what, 80% of prototypes and POCs never go live. How do we make sure that this prototype is going to make it to be able to be a uh, launched productive system eventually? Yeah, something eventually makes it to deployment. And most things obviously don't. And just to check in on where you're headed here, Jeff, we're, we're covering a lot of ground. And so I just want to keep our listeners following with your pace here. If, if you don't mind, I'll poke into a couple things. One, you mentioned with, with type two, which are kind of the, you know, we're working with companies that are newer to AI. And of course, that's most companies. It's even most of the big names everybody's familiar with. And we've had plenty of them on the show over the years. They're newer to this process. So when you say we kind of flesh out the scoping, determine the tools, et cetera, 
really you're sort of walking them through the reality of what the R&D type AI deployment is, right? They often kind of come in thinking this is going to be IT and you say, well, geez, you know, here's how we have to set up our hypotheses and define our business problem. And we need, you know, data science and subject matter experts to come together and determine how we're going to measure success on this thing. That's That might be often the first time they've even gone through that, right? So you guys are kind of introducing them to AI maturity as much as you are delivering on that one particular project. I would agree with that. I, I would say that additionally, though, uh, which might be even more scary, is that they may have done some tests already using Mechanical Turk or, or open crowd type of markets. Yeah. And so they think they know what they're talking about at that point. But the, the reality is they ha- it's because they haven't faced uh, launching a real yeah. production-driven release yeah. system. Yeah. And so they don't know that that data that they've been able to get you know, a couple things to maybe go plus versus minus for them isn't going to actually scale once we start moving into mass data set. And, and so that to me is where I have to almost sometimes untrain them to be able to, to move forward a bit. Yeah, well, this is a really important reality. And in fact, I think we beat this war drum more than any publication I know of. I think there's people that cover all kinds of topics, maybe we don't, but communicating AI value and the, the tact that's involved in getting people up to speed on these sometimes tough realities of making AI work is understated oftentimes. And you're addressing it right now. So I'm going to poke into it and and just kind of unravel it a bit. And then we'll we'll keep going with your flow. But this is a really important topic. There is this sort of dynamic where, yes, anybody can make a sandbox look pretty, right? They've got a Mm. sandbox. Oh, we kind of get it. Yeah. I mean, look at this thing. Look at how fancy it is with all this data we've pruned and we've made it work really nice. And there it goes. But of course, it's going to be very, very different in, in reality. You've got to sort of get people's head on straight, but you also have to do so in a way that's tactful and you can maintain rapport. We talked to a lot of the big service providers, Cognizant, Accenture, heads of AI at these kind of companies, both of those firms, in fact. And they have talked, honestly, and I've had to coax it out of them, about this idea of we have to educate, but we have to do so in a co-creative sense, not a, hey, you guys really need to know the real deal here. Let me tell you, because of course, then we're not going to move forward. How do you handle that tension? Because there is a tension there where you've got to do that retraining. It's an absolutely great question. And this is the difference between who ends up being successful, Dan, and who isn't. And I'll tell you that right right now. When I'm working with a client that thinks they know all of the answers to something, we at iMerit have worked on hundreds of projects for hundreds of accounts on, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 different types of tools, probably more than that. And so we've got a pretty good sense when we're going into a project where it's going. I think what's important here is I always lead with, I'm a problem solver. And I've been this way my whole career. I've, I've told people that you know the success to sales isn't selling, it's solving and, and solving problems is really all any of us do each day. Uh, I'm solving my employees' problems, I'm solving my CEO's problems, and I'm solving my clients' problems. That's basically my life, Dan. So when it, comes, when it comes to these customers, what I'm working with them on is figuring out what problem are we actually solving, what's unpack the problem we're solving, and what's solve it together. And, and the reality is we're on the same team. I'm an extension to your team. We are not at odds with each other. We're 100% aligned to solve the issue you have. And that issue may be you don't have the right tool to use. That issue might be that your guidelines aren't clear enough. It could be that you don't really know what you're creating a model for yet in a lot of these situations that we get into. So part of this in the beginning is really going in and figuring out what problem are we solving? 
building that trust together that I'm here to help not just solve today's problem, but the problems that are going to come up tomorrow, next week, next month, and, and at the end of this year, because the reality is the problems are going to keep coming and the problems are going to keep changing. And so we need to unpack that together and have trust with each other that I'm not judging your guidelines. I'm not saying that you aren't a smart person. What I'm saying is you know your business so well that the person you're writing the guidelines for isn't going to understand what that meant the same way you do. Just like, Dan, you know what New York pizza is, but someone from Chicago might not know what New York pizza is. And so we got to help make sure that we're very explicit on, on what we're trying to do. And I'd have to really bite my tongue to not tell the Chicago folks that they they got to be some kind of sociopath to eat a pizza like that. But that's its own podcast, so we could have a pizza <laughs> show at some point. But yeah, so very important. So as, as you brought up, this, this tactful conversation is the difference between success and failure. And you touched on it, but I think the listeners better damn well know how, how critical that is. So anywho, we're going to start getting into challenges in a moment. But you were talking about that second type of project that's much more hands-on, where you really have to do this kind of tool exploration. Is there anything else you want to talk about about what those kinds of projects require before we start talking about some of the particular hurdles there? Yeah, I, I guess what I would say is a lot of times, especially with where the industry is today, there's a new tool popping up basically every day. So, you know, every one of my customers is coming to me and saying, oh, I checked out this new demo, or I looked at this new uh, platform that just came out, or I saw this new tutorial from so-and-so. Uh, we're having a conference in in on December 2nd, on that conference, there's going to be a bunch of demos and stuff done. And so yep. those people are going to walk out and say, look, I, I saw 15 more tools that I'm excited about. And they're going to go talk to someone exactly. about it. <laughs> the reality is when somebody comes in, it's kind of, it looks to me like they're car shopping in some ways. And so I'll, I'll talk to a customer, they'll come in and they'll say, Jeff, we want to see a demo of your tool. We want to see how you solve you know, an edge case problem and get a better understanding of how we access and leverage your tool. When I start to dig in with it, I start to hear that, oh yeah, I checked out the AWS SageMaker tool and insert your favorite you know, 20 other tool systems and platforms out there that you'd like. What I end up seeing is they're looking at a four-wheel drive truck. They're looking at a convertible Ferrari. They're looking at a electric vehicle and they're seeing all these benefits of these different types of products that are out there in the marketplace. And so then when I start digging with them on Dan is, where are you driving? Are you going to be going to Denver tomorrow and it's going to be snowing and you got to get over an overpass and you know, you're, you're going to need four wheel drive? Or are you going across the desert and an electric car is going to run out of electricity and you're going to have no way to recharge your car? And the reality is most of these companies don't know where they're going six months from now, let alone six weeks from now. And so if they think that they're going to subscribe to one tool or one platform, and that's going to just fix all of their AI problems, especially around data labeling, that's just not true. And the reality is these companies are getting highly funded and they're getting high valuations. Yeah, that's right. And the reason for that is because each of them are solving very complex problems. And so what I'm looking at when I'm unpacking a project with one of our customers, we have our own tools at iMerit. We also have a giant partner ecosystem because I know that one tool does not rule them all. Because if one tool ruled them all, then I would just go work with that one tool company. But yeah, or, you, or you'd be out of a job, right? You'd be out of a <laughs> well, job. No, I'd just go work for them. That's exactly. Work. That's it. I, I'd, they'd, I'd they'd work the, for that one. The greatest company on earth right there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but my clients end up with a 2D workflow with image. Then they come to me with a 2D workflow 
with video. Then they have an audio issue. Then they have a LIDAR issue or a radar issue, or they need panoptic segmentation done. There's not one tool, even just whatever five use cases I came up with off the top of my head that could do all those things I just said. And so you have to work with a partner or be really tuned in and leaning forward to understand which 2D tool is best for this specific use case you're working on versus which 3D tool versus which NLP tool versus which content moderation software versus which, you know, because as you start working with these larger companies, especially the Fortune 500, but even when we get up into the Fortune 5s and 10s, they're now going to have their own tools internally, plus use probably, you know, their partner's tools and then need five different types of tools that happen to be the top of the, the game in the sector that they're working in. Yeah. Um, and we're going to spin into kind of a mentality for how to think through this. You don't know where you're going to be in six months idea. There's a lot to unpack there. We're going to talk about kind of a mind frame for leaders towards the end of this conversation and address that. But we have the opportunity now to get into some of the common challenges. You guys are deep in the data side of things. You mentioned your conference in December 2nd. Obviously, data ops is the the theme here, you, know, you guys are dealing with a lot of different data flows, different industries. What do you see as some of the common hurdles and challenges? You, you talked about some of the context of confusion, having to dial things in, but there might be even some more tactical level, consistent issues you see coming up that people need to be ready for and have an ability to overcome. What are some of those things around that data ops space that you guys have a lot of experience with that people need to know ahead of time? Yeah, I, I think I would say there's a big change from, again, prototyping to deployment of systems and, and understanding how to manage your workflows between prototype to deployment, I think is one of the big things that companies need to get a better sense of. Understanding that all of these aren't gonna go to deployment. How do I manage that data set that I've already created under one use case and potentially move that use case over to a different model that you've started to create? I think is one. I think another one is edge cases. Edge cases is really going to be where these things are won and lost. I, I, I think that's where uh, the war will be won in the long run is, is on edge case management. So how are you looking at the edge cases? How are you finding enough data uh, to fill the gaps uh, between edge cases that you have and edge cases that you know you're going to have, but you don't have the data for yet, uh, I think is another key area, right? So if we know that we want to make sure that bikes aren't going to get, you know, hit by a car just as a as a, sure, maybe a sure. silly example, but and you don't have enough bikes in your data, we're going to have to fill that. And again, you're going to need to work with somebody who has a partner ecosystem or has access to different data sets that they can help you go uh, acquire to be able to start filling those gaps within there. So again, going from beginning of prototyping all the way through deployment, that edge case piece is going to become really key. And then human in the loop is going to become really key. So the reality is once you start moving up through the data pipelines to full deployment, we can't take holidays. I think tomorrow's Veterans Day when we're taping this, right? So the reality is we can't take Veterans Day off of your AI model that's running in real time. So what's the 24 by 7 human in the loop components you've added into to take care of these edge cases uh, and what's called trigger actions that are going to pop up? in real time when you have full deployment. So, you know, today we work with uh, agriculture companies that have tractors that are driving, you know, in real time, run into a situation that edge case is recorded and immediately sent to us to be handled 
I call it near time, not real time, because we're not making a decision like at that second, but within minutes, that decision needs to be made so that uh, that tractor can go continue on his journey, right? So, so these are just a, a couple of those 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 pieces. This is great, and and obviously this is the kind of the business you're in. Of course, you guys would emphasize use cases or edge cases because that's kind of where you guys live. But to validate your point, I mean, you know, coming from a vendor or not edge cases are always going to be there and and there's going to be a need to tackle them. And in spaces like an, auto, an autonomous vehicle or, or big agricultural equipment, people could get hurt if this stuff's not working right. So being able to have a plan to tackle that's important. I think one point you just brought up that I, I like a bunch and actually we haven't had that many specific interviews about is human in the loop and where and how, you know, we bring up in the show, we, we see this show as kind of a, we do our damnedest to make it a bastion of truth, not to say, AI is transforming X, but to go really deep and say, what workflow, what did it look like before? What's it look like after? What kind of data is used? What are the challenges? What's the potential ROI? And get tight on that. Part of that is, where do man and machine interact? It's not like magical AI comes over the top like an umbrella and then the system's better. We have to tactically decide where people fit into the loop. What points do machines tackle things? What points do humans validate? How do you think through that process? Because that is something I would estimate in your space that even more than the bigger services firms who might have more people than you, you guys have a lot of experience with because that's where you interface. How do you think through that where humans fit in problem? Yeah, so so the, the big first question is how accurate do you need your algorithm to be? So let's start with that. Is eighty yeah. percent okay? Because it might be for what you're what you're it tackling. Could be. Yeah, and, it if, could be. and if eighty percent is okay, then we're going to get you there quickly with gold set data, you know, sets, and you know, yeah, we'll, we'll do some edge case management, et cetera. We'll get you the 85 percent type type of levels pretty fast. But all of a sudden, the tractor, you know, if we're using that as an example here, is 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 working in real time on uh, you know a giant farm. And by the way, all those farms are different. So that's, that's one of the areas in agriculture that I don't think people understand. They think, oh, agriculture is easy because there's not as many uh, changes in the system. Well, the reality is every farm is different. So in some ways, training a, a vehicle on a road, roads are actually pretty much the same. Every farm is different. So they have other challenges that, that pop up uh, in, in that space. But um, the reality is that they can't be 80% okay and think that their, their workers are safe. And so we start talking about safety in AI. We start talking about uh, what that means. And so, you know, what we eventually get to is an algorithm gets strong enough to say, ah, I'm 95% confident that this image is safe for a child to view. Okay. Is 95% safe enough for the child to view good enough for, for your social network? The answer probably is, frankly, is probably yes, because to get to 97%, it's going to be ridiculously expensive or 99% or 100. Oh, but now insane. if I'm in med AI, 95% sure it was the left arm. Like, like no, that's, that's, not, that's not going to work, right? And so in our med AI applications and, and projects we're running, we need to get the quality up to 99.9999999%. And to get to that, the human in the loop judgment gets much more sophisticated because the second something isn't sure of what it's seeing, someone needs to double check that and validate it. And you know, it really comes down to how confident is your algorithm at making a decision? And then what level of confidence do you need in that decision for your business to be successful? It's, it's that combination. This is good. And I think intuitively, this will make sense for people. You know, if you're, if you're doing document search and discovery, and we just like, need to find internal FAQ stuff and like 
you know, we have some ugly old system we can search for, but we, we want a simple like tool that can take phrases and, and give us the answers we want. Yeah, look, I mean, if the thing's better four out of five times than the clunky old system we got, we might all be freaking happy and go home. But again, if we're thinking a statue on the side of the road as an autonomous vehicle as a person and we slam on the brakes, that's not acceptable. And so, um, as you as you mentioned, kind of the the degree of of human in the loop tightness and involvement, and maybe how many points in the workflow they need to be involved, or or how frequently they need to be involved, is going to be a function of how accurate we must have this solution. The other question, and it, maybe there, it, hopefully there's a maybe a quick way you like to think about this because we've got one more question in our interview today, is where in the workflows does the human come in? Because of course, that's not intuitive either. It's like, oh, we need we need people to approve this stuff. It's like, okay, well, you know, at what point does the machine hand to the person and it goes back to the machine? You guys have to think about that as a kind of flow to keep these systems yeah. alive and improving. How do you even begin there? So let's, uh, I'll try to make it quick. So are we, are, are you training the data? Uh, sorry, are you training that algorithm off of data? If that data is coming from a gold set, you have humans involved in the very beginning. Okay, if it's if it's self-learning, like our chess master uh, AI algorithms have, it can make a bazillion mistakes in a row to learn how to move forward. And so, yep. and so, you know, if we're doing deep learning that way, I think we're, you know, that's fine. You can get it really far using deep learning with a bunch of a bunch of like wrong answers first, and then start using human in the loop later in the process to 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 level it up. If you're using a data-driven approach, and you're using the data from the beginning, then you need humans involved early and often in the beginning, lesser in the middle, and then they come back again at the very end to make sure that uh, the endpoint is correct, right? And so as you start to move to scale, at that point, your AI algorithm is doing 99% of the work, and then you're just really kicking edge cases and final decisions at the end. And this is a reason why RPA was so big in the very beginning of AI to kind of launch. You saw, it in, uh, you saw it in advertising. You saw it in the RPA space. You saw it in areas where mistakes were okay to be made, and it was still better than what was happening, to your point that you made a minute ago. Now, as we're moving into autonomous vehicles and med AI and these types of things, that level of quality is going up. And so um, in those places, the end point is both the beginning and the end point is going to have a lot of human uh, intervention. The middle will be mostly machine. And then in those, those deep learning models, that will be mostly machine, and then the end points will have the human and layer coming in to make sure it's at the right the right level. Is that a quick enough answer? It's, it's cool. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I like it as a as as a high level response. I think people who are tuned in, you can think about what circumstance do you fall into, and then what does that imply for sort of where and how often we might need humans. I, I like rules of thumb. I like giving people expectation setting advice that'll help them with their own projects. So that's that's excellent. Final question here is around a mentality to approach these projects. As you and I have mentioned, and as, as our audience uh, who've been here for any more than two episodes are already well familiar, these are complicated R&D type projects. There's a lot to juggle and many big companies are just, they're new to this and that's fine. They got to get started somehow. When you think about kind of mentality wise, how leaders should be thinking about and approaching these projects, um, is there any parting advice you really want to share and things that you think could help with their success? Yeah, I, I think I think it's it's work with a partner that you trust and you're willing to roll up your sleeves and get dirty with. And and I think that's there is no simple solution that someone's just going to fix all this and it's going to work for you if you want to own the algorithm that you're creating. And so this is the part, Dan, where where maybe I can give some I don't know small uh, piece of wisdom or something to Please. to your team is: Do you want to own a proprietary algorithm? or not. If you want to own a proprietary algorithm, 
to be able to get, you know, the multiples or you know whatever you're trying to tie to, to that algorithm, that, that it's going to have a high worth to your company and you want to own the proprietary algorithm, then you need to really unpack this stuff, get deep in it and make it right. If you're looking for a quick fix, then I think that's different. I think with if you're looking for quick fixes, there are algorithms that are out there and things you can plug into to make your life easy to do something. And, that, and I'll just go back to RPA. I think RPA is a good example of that. There is software today that you can download that can start to uh, automate some of your processes internally within your company. And that makes that part much quicker, but it's only going to be as good as the software is, you know, that, that, that you're downloading and it's not going to be proprietary. So just understand that you're not owning anything at the end of the day. Um, and that's fine. I don't think that's a problem. I, and so I think companies need to understand as they're going in, am I building something proprietary that I want to have standalone value or am I looking to just simplify a workflow? And those are two different things that I think uh, someone might want to answer as they start going in uh, into this journey. Really important. And that's come up a few times in the show. Incredibly important point. I'll touch in on that. One final thing we'll, we'll wrap here. You know, we mentioned document search and discovery. There may be something off the shelf to help with some kind of right. you know, something better than elastic search. It's going to get most of it done. And are you, is your company predicated on having a better FAQ for your employees around where to park at your different offices? Maybe it's not. In which case, buy it off the shelf. Don't deal with the ugly data pipeline stuff. Just just count on like a singular point vendor to, to tackle it. But if we're an insurance firm and we happen to have some really big market share in some particular niche areas of health insurance, and that data might fuel the market share pie to just be gobbled up by us if we play our cards right, adding more value to customers, expanding that market astronomically by really owning that in a way where it's going to be a core component of our strategy. Well, now... We don't want to just say, hey, uh, Mr. Risk Assessment Vendor, can you just kind of plug this in and then maybe you'll understand all this stuff and we'll just kind of sit here passively? You may not want to have that strategy. How do you advise people to think about what is that deep strategic stuff you want to own versus what is the stuff that maybe streamlining is really you know, so a I'm, better I'm just, approach? I'm just going to go straight to valuation to start with, right? So valuation, number one, is if, you know, right now, a lot of companies have gone and gotten funding because they're saying, I'm an AIX company. Uh, and so once you start to do that, and we're pretty tied to the <laughs> to the market For and, sure. and, 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 to, and to boards and investors, they're now getting smart enough to say, well, I want to understand how you're AI centric. So even in the Fortune 500, Fortune 100, if you're starting to say, oh, we're AI equipped or we're AI enabled or we're AI this, if you want that to hit your valuation, you better be able to stand by it. If you're not worried about valuation and you're not worried about having something that uh, makes you different than somebody else, and this is really just to become a process enabler, then I wouldn't, then don't worry about it. Like, like you know, plug into something that that uh, automates the system for you and saves you 20 bucks. You know, I, I think that's, that's how you, it, it's as simple as that. Are you going to look at this as valuation? Are you going to look at this as a differentiator in your market? If the answer is no to those two things, and it's really, I just want to automate processes, then, oh, there's a hundred companies who can help you automate processes by, by plugging into, go work with them, you know, for sure. Don't, don't take on the headache. Yeah, we, we frame it like, and I just want to validate this with you before we wrap, we, we frame it sort of like, if this is a core capability that is ultimately going to separate you from the market and it's going to be part of the engine of what gets you to your profit or your market share goals five years from now, if this is part of of real strategy, we got to start thinking about how we're going to own it potentially, particularly if it's AI. 
if it's again just an efficiency play or kind of a like a small kind of corner case and some workflow then we might want to dispel it more. Are you okay with that as a rule of thumb? Anything you want to add to that? I think that's why you host uh, the podcast, Dan, and I'm just a, I'm just a member oh, of, okay. of, get of out your of group. Here. Hey, buttering <laughs> me up at the end that's, of the episode. That's, that's too kind of you, that's Jeff. Extreme, All right. extremely well said. Okay, great, great. I'm glad. So I think, I think uh, well, well, you started it and brought up the great point. I think a lot of people do need to look through that lens, and I think mentality-wise, hopefully that'll help the folks who are tuned in decide what are the projects we're doubling down with a partner thinking about our data flows is, is really going to be the right move. So I know that's all we have for time. Jeff, this has been a great interview. Thank you so much for being able to join us on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. A big thank you to Jeff for bringing his enthusiasm and insight to this episode. I had a lot of fun with this one. I think that the intersection of where humans in the loop fit in in terms of accuracy requirements and in terms of types of AI project was something that we really haven't covered in past interviews. So I appreciated some of those ideas. And I appreciate you, our listener, for listening all the way through to the end of this episode. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, this was brought to you by iMerit Technology. If you are an AI vendor company interested in reaching Emerge's global executive audience through sponsored podcasts, content, custom market research, and more, you can find us at emerj.com ad1. That's ad as in advertise, the letter A, the letter D, and then the number one, emerj.com ad1. And you can learn more about our media kit and the offerings that we have for AI vendors who want to reach our audience. That's all for now. I look forward to catching you in the next episode here on the AI and Business Podcast.